0: Welcome, you're listening to Seat, where you'll find everything to do with spirituality, life lessons, holistic living, and medicine, to become your true self. We all have stories, journeys, experiences, and love. Here's your host, Aaron O'Dowd.
1: Hello and welcome, you're listening to Sanseit. My name is Aaron O'Dowd on today's show we have Michael Grosso. He has a PhD in philosophy in where he taught philosophy classes at Marymount College, City University of New York and the City University of New Jersey. He is informally affiliated with the Division of Perception Studies at the University of Virginia. He is part of the Board of Directors at the American Philosophical Association. He is a past editor of this association and has published many books such as The Millennium Myth, Exploring the Next World Now. And will have a new book coming out in November 22nd of 2015 and it is called The Man Who Could Fly. Saint Joseph's of Capitino. Hello, and w- welcome to the show, Michael Grosso. How are you doing today?
0: Uh, I'm fine. I'm uh, it's a, a cool, dry day in in the south of the United States.
1: Uh, excellent. Were you interested in philosophy?
0: Yeah, I I started out a student of classics, uh, but uh, once I started to read philosophy, I got intrigued and. Uh, I remember my brother had a book lying around the house called The Story of Philosophy. And I picked it up and kind of got hooked. And uh, so that when I went to college, I, I ended up majoring in uh, in philosophy.
1: I see. And who were you? Was it Homer or Socrates or Plato? Who were your philosophers at the time that inspired you?
0: Yeah, as a matter of fact, it, it was Socrates and, and Plato. I ended up writing my dissertation when I eventually ended up at uh, Columbia University um, on uh, on Plato and uh, especially uh, on his famous dialogue on immortality uh, and so that got me launched into the question of the nature of the mind which in turn eventually it took a while before I realized that there was a whole world of research being done on the nature of the mind and the nature of consciousness and um, that's how I got uh, into this business of uh, parapsychology, psychical research, mysticism. All these phenomena struck me as uh, absolutely central to appreciating and understanding the nature of the mind, although they're often neglected and ignored by uh mainstream academics
1: and why why the minds not the body or
0: oh well yes obviously yeah it's the relationship between the mind and the body that uh that interests me and uh i got interested in 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 the mind probably because i remember when i was very young i went to a doctor and i was sort of nervous in, in the doctor's office and i knew i was feeling nervous and my blood pressure had shot up uh, uh, not, I was 17 years old, you know. And the doctor looked at me amazed and, uh, and I was amazed and got even more anxious because he looked at me as if this was something terrible that it, you know, was up, it was not normal. But I kind of knew it was my mind that was doing it. I didn't believe that this was the way I normally felt. So that kind of triggered an interest in the relationship between mind and body which developed you know, throughout my life and and eventually I came to realize that the the mind is so powerful that it can, you know, make a difference in terms of healing. In um, recently I reviewed a book called Radical Remission about a, a, this is written by a woman, a psychotherapist who decided to research the so-called mysterious, you know, unexplained remissions from cancer and she found that the doctors, most doctors didn't even want to look at this stuff. But uh, she did some serious research and discovered that um, it was main, mainly changes of mental attitude that accounted for these mysterious and unexplained uh, remissions in cancer. So That's just the latest. <laughs> I'm jumping ahead uh, in terms of my story, but to try to make the connection between mind and body
1: so you become a a major in philosophy where did your your journey go after that
0: oh oh well i mean as i said it 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 opened up my mind to doing research on the more unusual uh, facets of of uh, of mental life and uh, when i finally got to graduate school i I wrote my dissertation on uh, on plato and and i asked myself the question is the mind the sort of thing that not only can influence the body, but can it survive the death of the body? And at first I was not impressed by that possibility. But then, as I say, after I got out of graduate school and I had time to investigate many of these topics on my own, I discovered there's a thing called psychical research, parapsychology, and uh, that's how I started to get interested some of these more unusual psychological phenomena that suggested that uh, yes in fact uh, then I started to look into the research into life after death and I discovered um, that there was real scientific evidence not necessarily absolutely proving life after death but point but pointing in that direction and that sort of set me uh, free to do this research after I got my, my PhD, which was more tended to be more um, conventional. say okay? I was not quite there yet in terms of examining these more far out phenomena.
1: And where did your research take you, or and what were the discoveries?
0: What did I discover? How did I where did this lead me to? Uh, I don't know. I I I started to uh, for one thing I. Began to read extensively into the uh, literature, and I also made a discovery that uh, the mainstream attitude toward this subject was um, tended to be uh, negative, suspicious. They would talk about the woo woo, you know, and it didn't seem woo woo to me at all. I, you know, the other thing I would say about my own background uh, is that uh, from the very beginning, of uh that i can recall i used to have every now and then puzzling little experiences that i couldn't quite you know account for things that later on i realized there were words to describe them telepathy or psychokinesis and so uh, i not only got intellectually interested in this dimension or domain of reality But I um, started to have experiences of my own. I probably had them very early on. I I, I remember the first experience that I had that puzzled me. I couldn't have been any more than 10 years old. And there was a kid on the block that I never really hanged out with. He was not a friend of mine. And one morning I had a vivid dream that this young boy who was not a friend uh, came up to me in the brilliant sunlight and said, let's play Campbell, or something like that you know he invited me to play with him remember i'm 10 years old <laughs> and uh so i had this vivid dream and i got up and you know forgot about it but the dream was very was so vivid so real and i stepped outside of my house after i had breakfast and there was this kid whom i had never really gotten to know and he comes right up to me and he asks me if i want to play ball with him. And here I am decades later, <laughs> and I still remember this because it was so striking. You know, why should I have a dream like that that has come true in its effect? So, um, these experiences, uh, go back to my, of course, I didn't pay that much attention at age 10, but it stuck in my mind, or else I wouldn't be telling you the story. And then as time went on, I had right up until. I got my PhD at at Columbia University, I've had all kinds of, not many, but periodically something would happen that reminded me how little I understood about my own mind. You know, I'll mention some of the more recent experiences that I had that opened me up uh, to this world. And uh, I remember back in 1981, that's rather a while back now, I guess, when President Reagan was almost assassinated. I had three dreams in a row o- over a period of two weeks, in which I saw in the dream, each time I saw some different aspect of it but what it amounted to, I saw that the president was shot, went down, and then and then in the last dream, I saw him standing up looking beaming with health. So I actually told my students I was teaching philosophy at that time in a college in New Jersey and I told my students about these three dreams and I said I have a feeling something is going to happen because three times in a row have the same dream, it's kind of weird, right? And uh, so sure enough, one day my student had my telephone number called me up and trembling, her voice trembling, told me that I, I didn't know this that the president had just been shot and, uh, and the first thing I said was, but he's going to be all right. And of course, I was correct on that. So experiences like that for a young philosopher, I mean, how is it possible to know something before it happens? I still don't have the answer to that question. But I refuse to accept the idea that those three experiences were coincidences. Maybe one once you could have a dream and it comes true and you could say that's a coincidence. Three times. So these experiences, plus the readings I was um, starting to do at that time in 1981, were significant in in opening me up toward doing more and more research uh, on the uh, the unusual abilities of the human mind and reflecting on what these. Unusual abilities implied for our understanding of what it is to be a human being, and basically, it, it's uh, you know it, uh, two things. One, one is simply that the mainstream view that I was being taught in you know school and graduate school, reductive sort of, materialism, I mean, sort of the mainstream philosophy, is pretty much that in the scientific world. That seemed to me impossible. That had to be false. That was the first thing that I acquired from these experiences in my readings. And the second thing was that if so, then we all, because this is a human thing, it's not just one person. One person has an experience like that. In principle, it should probably apply to everybody. So The, the second big conclusion that I arrived at was that uh, human, our human potential we're doing things we're accomplishing things our human capacities are much greater and more extended than we normally think that they are and i found that a positive and optimistic message even though it's upsetting some people who are tied to this to a certain you know mainstream view of things which is more conservative and uh so that that was the direction in which i i started uh, to uh, to move in my in my thought and, and where I still
1: am well and evolving in that direction. And did you put your findings and your research into your books, or how did your books come about? Oh, well, okay,
0: that that's uh, really a good question. Uh, yeah, I did. and uh, of course, you know my research just extended beyond my own experiences. but my own experiences opened me up. that thats, I think is so important. I mean, uh, you know, recently you're probably familiar with a a, a a book that's become like a worldwide bestseller by Eben Alexander called Proof of Heaven. This, this guy was a, a neuroscientist, and you know, most neuroscientists are, uh, think that you can explain everything by the brain; it's all reducible to the brain. Uh, our minds are just our brains, and he believed that too until he had uh, this illness. That almost killed him. And he had a, an incredible near-death experience, and it completely it, it transformed him. Uh, it, it transformed his philosophy of life. He's become like like a St. Paul of the near-death experience, going all over the place, uh, promoting the idea that, you know, there's an whole universe of mystery and consciousness out there that we know nothing about or hardly anything about. But the point is, the guy had an experience and uh unfortunately if you don't have an experience of your own that's striking and that opens up your mind you know unless you're highly critical and suspicious of mainline views you can be taken in by the dominant philosophy and by the way i should say that that dominant philosophy is changing i mean it's you know there are a lot of uh, signs of a new paradigm and when you ask about my books my books are our attempt to contribute to this conversation about a new paradigm that appreciates a bigger picture of what it is to be a human being and doesn't reduce us to just biological machines that uh, have no real profound, you know, real consciousness. So um, I think this, and and the more I'm involved in this process, the more I've come to see that this is important for many reasons. I mean, materialism is not just an abstract idea, it's in part the way people live. And, um, you know, uh, when we think about so many features of our lives are dominated by the assumptions that the only reality is uh, is, is the physical reality, which is real. I mean, our bodies are real, and we have to take care of them. And, and celebrate but uh, our bodies are informed by our minds and our imaginations and dare I use the word souls and if we forget that then we become you know I think sort of like zombies, uh, the living dead uh, <laughs> so my books are, are a part of an ongoing critique of, uh, of this reductive Materialism that has such an impact on the way we live and uh, on our economic philosophy, our, our, on our on the militarism. I mean, what could be more materialistic than militarism? Where you make money selling weapons of mass destruction and then use them to, to maintain your power and, and to, as it were, uh, uh, shake the world according to militaristic materialism. <laughs> Uh, not my idea of a, of a wise uh, approach to uh, to human reality and to the human experience. What I'm trying to say is that what led my little experiences, boyhood experiences, my encounter with the academic world uh, has, you know, and its limitations, and then my discovery of this whole dimension of reality that we're neglecting, or underrating, has led not only to writing books and intellectual statements, but I, I feel that the way we view the world has impacts on, uh, on on politics. So, I mean, I don't emphasize that too much, but, that, but since you're asking me, this is sort of the background interest uh, of my of my research. It's not just academic, but also philosophical in a practical sense, and uh, has a lot of connections with how we live, I think how we should try to live it anyway.
1: And how do you think all these areas are combining together to create the mind?
0: Well, it's not that they create the mind, it's what we call the mind. is just a very abstract word for these capacities that we have. Mind is just an abstract word for human abilities. The ability to be conscious, for example. The natural world, I mean the non-mental world, the non-living world, is made up of things that, that lack consciousness, and this consciousness that living creatures—not only humans, but we'll just focus on humans for the moment—is really a mystery. Science does not understand. I mean, even the most uh, die-hard reductionist materialists will admit, unless they're just outright denial, that no one knows how this intangible stuff that we call the mind, imagination, feeling, intuition, memory, all of this. No one understands how these things can be the products of matter. They're so discontinuous. It's probably unlike each other. So I think that, um, you know, we need to pay attention to
1: how we differ from Uh, non-living and uh, unconscious
0: uh, creatures and and, uh, one of the interesting areas I think that I'm connecting with lately myself is uh, the past 20 or 30 years scientists finally waking up to the fact that animals are conscious Uh, going back to Descartes the French philosopher back in the 17th century a lot of you know Philosophers, uh, scientists, uh, uh, biologists uh, have, you know, assumed that animals are not conscious at all. They have no feelings, which my judgment is an excuse then to use and exploit and uh, abuse the animal world in ways that are completely unjustified, but that's changing now. There are a lot of people, a lot of writers, uh, rattle off a whole bunch of names. I'm sure you're probably aware of this yourself. In the past 20 or 30 years, that whole thing is changing. So we're starting to realize that not only human beings have rich inner lives, but animals uh, that we tend to treat as machines and just use and exploit them also have an inner life. And that, I think, is important because it changes our whole sense of uh, being part of the community of living things on this planet and uh, as you know the it, 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 planet itself is uh, in danger nowadays with climate change and uh, I think that a uh, revolution of consciousness would also have beneficial effects on our attitude toward the environment uh, and recognize that uh, we're surrounded we're not alone, we're not just human species by itself trying to extract benefits from nature but we have to all live together that in a sense the planet itself is alive. So that's a big change in in outlook and and I think we need to undergo that change and that transformation uh, to deal with the problems of the future as they loom toward us and things get more uh, upsetting and more disturbing.
1: The word genius from the research and what you found through the mind what happens there?
0: Ah, what happens in the world of, well, genius. You know, a lot of scientists nowadays they, they see the concept of genius as sort of elitist. And you know, there's a whole tendency of, a tendency, is not absolutely true for everyone, but a tendency for scientists to want to reduce things to cut man. They like to do that cut man with a capital M down to size and say, and kind of undermine the idea that, that there's anything special by human beings, including something genius, like with a kind of, a kind of uh, cult of the genius, uh, the critics would say that But uh, when you look at genius, it's, it's more or less... Uh, but I don't believe that's the case at all. I, uh, I think that uh, by genius, I understand the capacity of some... You know, this is sort of a somewhat narrow use of the word, but uh, I think that some human beings and for we know, some animals may have an exceptional access to the deeper layers of the mind that go beyond the merely rational, beyond even the conscious. And we'll take, for example, William Blake uh, is an example of a, of a great English poet. He says, you know, I can praise some of my own poetry because I didn't write it. I don't think he was being ironical there. I think he was saying that, that his genius as his inspiration and say, flip over. <laughs> and, you know, I, you know, not, it's not to say that the genius doesn't work for over his work and, and refine it, but the idea of genius that, that we all, and I believe this is true for all of us, not just the ones that, the individuals that become famous, but I believe, you know, that we all have the potential to tap in to levels of our creative mind that normally remained unused and uh, unexploited. But um, so, in terms of education, uh, I would say you know my, part of my research is, or uh, is about, in trying to encourage people to become aware of their own latent uh, creative abilities. And also to talk about ways at which in which we can uh, break open the uh, the, um, the a- access to these levels. Of but um, one of them, for example, is simply learning how to tune into our dreams, learning how to tune into what psychologists call automatisms, learning how to bypass the inhibitions of our rational mind. And part of the inhibitions is the culture around us, which is bombarding us with messages most of the time about consumerism, fear, you know, fear of the other, fear of the enemy, fear of old age, fear of death, fear of disease, fear of strangers. Uh, all of these, you know, let's say mainstream input, cultural
1: input, there's too much of it there that works against this resource what I'm calling,
0: somewhat old-fashioned word, genius. Genius rooted to a word of genesis, to create. We need it to survive as a species, especially as the planet becomes overcrowded and we're, you know, confronting ourselves. We're confronting more and more um, social unrest all over the planet. We are going, as species, really need to tap into our creative abilities to survive challenges of our individual and collective lives. So I'm all for, um, you know, in praise of genius and how we can tap into it uh, as the latent potential in all of us. I'm against the cult of the genius, but I want to democratize access to our latent creative abilities.
1: And how can we tap into that?
0: One first step is to clear the mind of its uh, inhibitions uh, and of its image. I mean, so many people are walking around with feeling terribly bad about themselves, with feeling that they are incapable of coping. And our belief system is that the way to begin to access these creative forces is that we need to take an inventory, all of us as individuals, of our mental equipment and our our belief system. And I think that we honestly look at ourselves, most of us are going to find unnecessary wounds that have been inflicted on us. I had a friend, I'll tell you, I, I like to make a point by telling the story. I had a friend who wanted to be a writer. He was a good writer and talented writer. But one of the things that inhibited him, he had an aunt whom he admired when he was a boy. And he went up to her one day and, and said, you know, I think I'd like to be a writer. And her response was, well, maybe you're better off uh, uh, getting a job in a factory because I don't think you have the ability. Something like that, right? I mean, it was, ne- it was negative. And he was young, a young lad. Uh, he grew up, even in, in his mature manhood, and he still remembered the effect that that had on him. It had what his aunt, whom he had trusted, put him down. He walked away with the belief that he was incapable of of doing things. And even though he he tried and he was modestly successful, his entire life he uh, was swayed by that thoughtless remark that he had absorbed into his belief system. What I'm saying is that, to answer your question, to try to answer your a very, very, very difficult question, uh, namely, where to begin is to, is to take inventory to become more reflective about what we believe about ourselves and how we acquire those beliefs and where we have been wounded into having a negative sense of our own abilities. It could be our parents, our teachers, books that we read, friends that teased us when we were kids aware of the heck it was that 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 that, that the that the baggage that we're all walk that uh, not all but many of us are, are walking around with and preventing us from flowering as human beings that would be the first step. kind of um, sort of self-study of uh, institute a little course and self-study about one's beliefs and, and and begin to realize hey you know I, where did I get that idea that I I couldn't I I'll give you another example if I may uh. A quick one. Um, I had a, a friend in a, when I met in town a woman from, I forget I think she was from Romania or some other some country out of the United States. And she was a very fine academic. But she had a passion for painting but she never got into it and I asked her why. Well, so she said she was raised to believe in her culture and in her family that you can only be good at one thing and that she had decided she was gonna be a good academic. She's a sociologist, I believe. She grew up with this residual dream of getting into painting. So I said, well, wow, that's crazy. Just go to an art store and buy some paint and canvas and start doing something. Follow your instincts, follow your bliss. And oh no, I wouldn't do that. I don't think I will succeed. Now, this whole woman's, you know, an important part of her life was sitting on ice, frozen as it were, because, um, a ridiculous belief. Didn't she ever hear of the Renaissance? (laughs) Where people did all kinds of things and people still do all kinds of things. Lots of people do many different things. And uh, so, but her belief uh, trapped her. So uh, that would be the starting point in reply to your question.
1: Who is St. Joseph of Cappatino?
0: Ah, well, that's another story. I was wondering when you were going to ask me about. Uh... And it's in line with everything I've been saying. Uh, Some years ago, I was in Italy. I met a novelist who knew I was interested in unusual psychological phenomena. So he gave me, uh, very generously offered to give me a copy of a 1722 biography of St. Joseph Pocatino. Now, I had heard about St. Joseph and read a little bit about him in some of my readings. But uh, I was overwhelmed by the generosity of this novelist. And of course, I took the book. <laughs> and I had it lying around in my house. Now, I can read the Italian reasonably well. So I would pick the book up every now and then, and I would glance at it. And I kept seeing words like uh, estasi and ratti. Estasi means ecstasy or ecstasies, plural, and ratti from rapture. A rapture, meaning being lifted up into the air. I would read a little bit, but it was a very complicated 17th century Italian prose. So one day, one of my colleagues suggested, why don't we find a translator and get this book translated, because we could all see what's in it. And, and there might be some interesting stuff. So that's what happened. We hired a translator, beautiful translation, and on the basis of that translation, I had access to all of these eyewitness reports about Joseph's famous ability to levitate, so I ended up writing a book myself. and I'll tell you a little bit about the story of that book. First, I, I, I got a contract with Oxford University Press. That's a pretty good uh, publishing house. Everybody was in favor of uh, publishing it, and except there was one philosopher who wanted to publish the book, but insisted that I tone down the claims about levitation. So I said I would. I said I would never conclude explicitly the saint levitated. I would just tell the story. Well, to make a long story. short, they kept persisting, and when it came to publishing the book, they wanted me to really tone all that stuff down. I refused to do that. That would be a lie. I'm not, and I'm not into publishing a book based on a lie. So I found a new publisher, and the book will be coming out, by the way, November twentieth is the date of publication. Now, I'll give me the title. My new publishers wanted me to stress the levitation part. So, the title of the book is The Man Who Could Fly, St. Joseph of Cupertino and the Mystery of Levitation. Okay, why did I get into that book? First of all, levitation is a pretty dramatic form of what's called psychokinesis, the ability of the mind to directly affect matter. Okay, that's how I was defined. Levitation, or how I would define psychokinesis—mind moving. Kinesis means movement or change. I uh, realized that this uh, that this case of, of levitation, after I read the book and after I read other Italian books by like contemporary scholars, they're almost all in Italian. Mine will be the first book in English on the subject. I realized that uh, this was the evidence was. To my mind, at any rate, overwhelming. It's historical evidence, and it's 35 years. That was a full length of Joseph's career as a a priest. He's more than a priest, he's a mystic. Uh, But for 35 years, he traveled all over Italy. Wherever he went, he levitated while saying Mass, during processions, while he was visited by people in his cell, and hundreds, if not thousands of people witnessed him in the course of 35 of his 35-year career. Moreover, these uh, people came the, from Germany, from France, from Spain, um, from Poland. The king, a guy, guy who would uh, eventually become the king of Poland, came to visit Joseph, because they had heard about him, and uh, Joseph told them that uh, this man John of Waza was his name, Polish name. Uh, wants to become a, um, a, a Jesuit or a monastic. You want to enter a monastery, and Joseph don't, because you're gonna, you don't know something much more important is going to happen to you. And sure enough, what happened was that his brother, who had become king, died, and so this fan of Saint Joseph became the king of Poland, and. Uh, you know and they remained in touch for the rest of their lives by the way the church was very uh, suspicious it always is of individuals who have unusual powers they're a little afraid that they're going to go off on their own and start their own cults so the story of joseph his dealings with the uh, with the inquisition uh, it's a wonderfully interesting story about a man with extraordinary abilities who's really quite saintly and a, and a true obedient son of the Catholic Church. He, you know, had some rough times, and his own life, in a way, was deeply disturbed by his abilities, which were involuntary levitate. He would go into... And here's the the only... The feature of levitation that is most interesting to me is the fact that it is always preceded by an unusual mental state, one that we call ecstasy, which is not to say that every time someone's feels ecstatic that they levitate. It's not too obvious. But there's a definite connection. In other words, the levitation is a consequence of a mental state. So my question was in the book, first of all, to tell the story, but also to ask the question, how is it possible for a mental state of a human being, and Joseph is not the only one who does this kind of thing, gives this kind of thing. but what is the connection between a mental state, i.e. Ecstasy, rare state, by the way, relatively rare, and a behavior of a person's body that seems to completely suspend the laws of gravity. This is a mystery. Uh, by the way, I don't have the answer to the question. But what it says is that each of us, in principle, latently must contain some very powerful capacity to directly impact the laws of nature, i.e., gravity itself. And uh, so that's one of the questions I pose in the book. And it turns out that Joseph was able to do a lot of things with his mind. He was, the reason people followed after him was not just because he levitated, but because he was a healer. He seemed to have insights into, you know, almost telepathic insights into people's lives, could predict their futures. I mean, he was an all-around miracle man, let's say, one of the most well-documented case of a miracle man in the Catholic Church. So uh, I started to see Joseph as a symbol. I mean, by the way, I respect his role in the Church, but I'm trying to look at his story outside of the framework of the Church because I think he's, you know, before he's a saint, he's still a human being. And uh, I want people to realize that this is that he, though so a Catholic saint, was also a human being, as we all are uh, human beings, and therefore are all in possession of, of these extraordinary powers in principle. So that's how I got to writing the book, and I'm um, looking forward. I know that a lot of people are interested in this book because it's so spectacular. I mean, it's such a spectacular thing that a man... By the way, I mean, fly is the right word. He didn't just hover off the ground couple of inches, which he did very often, but uh, he would sometimes literally fly up to the top of a, of a tree and hover there or shoot 60 feet across uh, the church. On one occasion, <laughs> uh, he, he was very excited. It was Christmas Eve and he went out into the street and he, and he got the young, the young shepherds who were blowing on their pipes, making music. He got them to come inside uh, the church Uh, And in the nave of the church, he had them, you know, sing Christmas carols, play Christmas carols. He got so excited, and I know this is going to sound totally incredible, but there are a bunch of eyewitnesses that swore that this happened. He got so excited, he started to fly in the air and dance in the air as the pipers were piping Christmas songs. Can you see that? Can you imagine that? <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, 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 was, it was, you know, mind-blowing. And uh, then these young uh, shepherds were eventually called up in front of, uh, you know, the proper authorities and instructed to first swear uh, and give an eyewitness account of what they had witnessed. Uh, so there's stories like that. And uh, so I found the story completely... Uh, and the fetching and fascinating and, uh, and I've written it and I've written it in a way I hope will appeal to the general leader you know you don't have to be a brain scientist or a rocket scientist to understand levitation it's, uh, and also it's not a hard thing to get evidence for there will be critics who will say oh they were deluded enough. not for 35 years if you couldn't have the same delusion I can see something happening in the dark quickly some people like in mediumistic Circles and may imagine something has happened in a dark room. The last few seconds—that you can criticize. You can't criticize a guy who did something over and over again, in broad daylight, in front of numerous people for 35 years. So I'm ready to argue with, this, with, with the, the skeptics, but I can—I appreciate the skepticism. I mean, it's not something you automatically uh, will be inclined to accept or believe. I, I don't assume that anyone will just take my word for it but if they read the documents hopefully their minds will open and they will gain from that sense of there's something in us that is so powerful and mysterious let's explore it let's cultivate it That's right, the purpose of writing the book
1: Fascinating <laughs> yeah, I think so, I really do and a lot of fun too <laughs> It's It sounds like it um, Did you come across any other people like St. Joseph, or is this once-in-a-blue-moon kind of rare diamond?
0: It's a good question. The, uh, here, here's a point. From the research that I've done, there's roughly 200 Catholic saints alone where there's good evidence, good eyewitness testimony for meditation. Uh, but Joseph is undoubtedly the most spectacular case. But these things are also reported in other contexts. I have come across three contemporary cases, which I mentioned. I myself conducted an experiment of levitation in a classroom with, that I was team teaching with another colleague. I don't know if you ever had this experience when you were a boy, but I certainly didn't have it. But I learned from my students that some children, they have they play a game where they touch another child and they sort of chant a name and the kid... And the child will then be raised off the ground. And I remember being told this in, a, in this class, that uh, it was a class of personality development, and we were studying things like shamanism and mysticism. And I said, let's, let's do an experiment. It was spontaneous uh, effort to do an experiment. So we got a 200-pound Marine. We sat him on a chair, and we got four of the frailest females. And had each of them with two fingers underneath his elbows, the Marine's elbows and his, underneath his knees. And, and when we all chanted, and we chanted together for a while, including the, the girls, and he just sat there stony-faced. And, uh, and then I said, lift! And I'll be done if, to our astonishment, there was about 25 people in the class and, and, and a second colleague, who was my witness, another witness, up went the Marine into the air. As far as those girls, they were, there was no effort. They're, he just, they had their hands on, their fingers on him. But up he went into the air, 200 pounds. And the last, you know, maybe a few seconds. I will never, Aaron, never forget the expression on this guy's face. Of utter and complete astonishment that he was up in the air. <laughs> and then gently, he, you know, he didn't buy Crashed down. He came down, and the girls were astonished. And uh, so, I, in other words, here's what I'm trying to say: Joseph was an extraordinary case of full-blown levitation for many years. Okay, but he's just a very dramatic illustration of what I believe to be a latent capacity in, in everybody, and it shows up in different ways. Uh, Michael Murphy has written a, uh, with, a with a second person. Ray O'White has written a wonderful book on unusual bodily phenomena in sports, and th- this book is, uh, I-, I quote it in my book, has many examples of people uh, in, in, in various contexts of sports and running and football, uh, also examples in dance. Dancers sometimes describe this. that seem temporarily to get loose from gravity in a moment of excitement or intense psychic intensity. So it, when you start looking around, you see that um, there are different forms of levitation. For example, in are reports of poltergeists. Poltergeists, which you probably know about, are these noisy spirits. That's what a poltergeist means. But what it usually is, that usually children who are emotionally disturbed can be the focus of physical objects moving in inexplicable ways, i.e. levitating, right? Tables, uh, jars, uh, plates, uh, candelabras, all kinds of weird things happen. And this is a fairly uh, regular but still highly rare phenomenon. And there's are of books written on this material. Uh, well, that, that's another form of decay, of, of another form of levitation. A lot, a lot of mediums, I mean, I, and I gave the example of, of levitating uh, that marine. But then again, people who, there are table-tilting experiments. I once did an experiment with, uh, uh, with two very distinguished people. One of them was a very famous pianist. I shouldn't mention their names without their permission. But uh, he and his wife and I at a conference in parapsychology uh, did a little table-tilting experiment. We put our hands on a small table. The damn thing took off, Aaron. It took off. Wow. It jumped up, as long as we kept our fingers on it, we had to follow it, we had to chase after it. It went out of the room of the hotel room and went up and down the, 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 the hallways there. We were laughing and shocked at the same time, this. It this was totally unexpected. Maybe we were psyched up over whatever the heck it was, but uh, I, so there was an example of call it quasi-levitation. Because after all, we were touching it, but we were not pushing it. I mean, I don't know, if, if anyone who's done the Ouija board knows, from experience, you can put your finger on on that pointer and it will start to move. And everyone who done this in, in good faith will say, hey, I wasn't pushing it, it was moving. So that's a form of levitation. And so what I'm trying to say is that Joseph is just the star manifestation of a phenomenon that i believe is pervasive as a matter of fact to go back to sports or just to go back to everyday life the fact that i in my mind just from my own mind can cause have an impact on my nervous system cause me to raise my arm up into the air that already is a form of levitation it's sort of in the body levitation as opposed to let's say a dice throwing experiment where a each influences the fall of dice at a, different, at, at a distance. That would be a type of, uh, of, of levitation. In fact, it's a very complicated, uh, elaborate system of phenomena. Some of these phenomena are voluntary, some are involuntary. Joseph's levitations were involuntary. He didn't try to levitate, he just did. I mean, what he was thinking when he was levitating was God, the beauty of the sky, the Madonna. Something would trigger him. Uh, I should say something about Joseph's flippetations. Almost anything could put him, send him off into a state of ecstasy. There's one famous uh, account. He's walking along with one of his brethren. And, you know, being good monks, they stop and they pause. And and his brother, one of his brother monks says, Joseph, look at the sky. Isn't it so beautiful? And that was enough to trigger a state of ecstasy in Joseph and up he flew into the sky (laughs) at the mere suggestion that God's sky was beautiful Uh, this trying to sound crazy to you Uh, (laughs) uh, but these are true stories Uh, and uh, this is my my sense of why this is important we completely underestimate the nature of the mind when we reduce it to the brain, it's impossible to do that Uh, we have to science needs to catch up here with these phenomena that's what i'm trying to say most scientists tend to uh, back off you know dismiss all of this stuff out of hand automatically i understand that i understand that and uh, i i uh, i feel that my job one of my one of my aims try to uh, undermine that that uh, that confidence uh, which is so felt so limiting my judgment
1: Bar your your new book coming out, is there anything else that is on the cards for you in the next coming year?
0: Ah, good question. One thing is the, the, the biography that I told you about that we translated, I'm going to publish that too. Because I think that people will really find it interesting. Uh, I, I had to edit the translation because a lot of stuff there I thought was, would be, it needed to be edited to make it more readable to 21st century readers. So I'm planning to do that, but that's more of Joseph. And uh, in the meantime, I have recently published a, a book uh, uh, with uh, my friend and colleague Ed Kelly uh, that I'll mention. It's called Beyond Physicalism. And this, this book just came out, well, a couple months ago, came out. And it's a book that we wrote. Uh, I'm, I'm just one, I contributed a chapter to the book on the nature of the mind and its relationship to the body but it's got about 13 authors in it's big fat book and it's an attempt to come up with a new philosophy based upon the, a, a complete account of the, the data and in, in other words uh, so it's a critique of, it's a philosophical uh, critique of uh, materialism with a lot of, you know, uh, chapters in it that try, tries to construct a new philosophy a new vision so that that's very much part of this group which is conducted largely by a, a research group uh in excellent and michael murphy there is the, the guy that is uh, responsible for that i've been in touch with michael lately because we're going to have a conference uh, next spring just about joseph's levitations as a focus as a sort of a central theme we're going to have some physicists and scholars of religion and really try to get into that. So that's the other thing. And another thing that I'm very excited about lately is, um, I think I mentioned this earlier in our talk, uh, I'm very interested in the new, growing interests on the part of scientists in animal consciousness, because I think that is a breakthrough. Because scientists until recently, as I said, did not believe that animals were conscious. Because anyone who owns or uh, had a pet should know otherwise, right? Mm-hmm. And people who work on farms know about animals and their abilities and their sensitivities and all of that. But I'm talking about the academic world, which can sometimes be a little removed and detached from, from reality, And uh, but all of that is changing, and I'm very excited about it, because if science can open its mind and imagination up to consciousness of animals, then they should start working, waking up, becoming more alert. To the deep and mysterious realms of consciousness of human beings. And they haven't done that yet. And uh, I'm talking about the mainstream, right? There are always exceptions. Uh, your program is an exception, right? You are exploring these uh, elements and these dimensions. And so then there are lots of folks out there, that uh, scientists and journalists and explorers. But the mainstream view still is uh, needs to be opened up a little bit. So that would be my... Uh, that's where I'm going. A uh, couple of directions, or, uh, directions that I'm moving in.
1: If you could, throughout everything you've learned and experienced and so on, is there one thing that you would like to share to the audience that could help them grow or help them understand where to go?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose uh, the, the one big idea is that we underestimate our... As human beings, I'm not inviting people to become inflated, <laughs> but I think we suffer from a kind of deflation as a result of the troubled world that we live in, the limited in the history of the way science has evolved. And I, 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 my big idea that I would try to summarize is for people to have more courage and more confidence about the higher potentialities of human beings and of themselves and not to get uh, sucked up into the cynicism and the gross materialism I don't mean to sound like a bloody preacher (laughs) I'm not Uh, but uh, that would be it you know and and I also think that uh, I think it's not I mean these are big questions you're asking me I I, I don't want to get launched but I think that both science and religion are due for major revisions and, uh, and, and some kind of a, a fusion of the science and a religion of the future that is more in tune with human needs and human potentialities. And that's pretty wildly ambitious, I suppose, but you asked me. <laughs> and that's, my, that's my response.
1: I'd like to say thank you, Michael, for coming onto the show and sharing what you got to share.
0: Well, it was my pleasure, and uh, I thank you for inviting me. Thank you for spending the time to listen to the show. If you want to learn more, check out sandseat.com. That's S-A-N-C-I-T dot com. Join Sandseat Group on Facebook and contact us if you have any questions. Until next time... Have an awesome day and
1: rock on. Thank you for listening to the show. If you find this show very interesting or want to listen to more, please subscribe to iTunes Holistic Therapies by Sunset or go to sunset.com to subscribe there. If you really like the show, please leave a review or a rating on iTunes. Or a comment on Facebook.com/sansseat.